here is kind of one of the first building dedications ever. It takes place, this passage is taken from a time when uh, King Solomon, under his leadership, they finally finished building the temple in Jerusalem, and they were having a building dedication service. And uh, before the temple, they had something called the tabernacle. And the reason why God asked his people to build a tabernacle is God has always wanted to be with us. And um, the story kind of changed. Adam and Eve got to be with God all the time, but then they chose, they chose sin. And then God couldn't come and walk with them all the time, but he had a, a plan to then restore that relationship and bring us back into connection with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, in the meantime, he instructed the Israelites, you need to build a dwelling where my presence can come and it can meet with your leadership and meet with you. And so at first they had something called the tabernacle. They would set it up. They would take it down. There are entire chapters and books of the Bible devoted to talking about the tabernacle. Fascinating study. But just suffice it for this morning's discussion to understand that the first thing they had was the tabernacle. This is when Israel was kind of a mobile operation, kind of like we are. They'd walk this far until God would say stop. They'd stop, set up camp, and put up the tabernacle. Then sometime later, God would say, okay, it's time to walk again. And they'd pack up the tabernacle a very specific way and carry it to the next spot. And when he'd say camp, they'd set it up. Well, finally, they got to their more permanent home, their permanent home in Israel. And they, they didn't need a mobile place for God's presence anymore. They wanted a permanent place. And God gave David a vision, King David, a vision for how to build it. David made some decisions in his own life that disappointed God greatly. And God said, David, my initial plan was for you to finish the temple, but because you've sinned, you're not going to complete it. However, I have a new assignment for you. I want you to get all the blueprints ready and get the funds ready and pass it on to your son Solomon, and I'm going to use Solomon to finish building the temple. And so Solomon finally, under his leadership, they finally finished building the temple. And the passage I want to read you this morning is about when they had kind of the building dedication ceremony for the temple. And I want you to hear what kind of, they had a protocol and they had a plan, but I want you to see how God surprised them and their plan. Let me read to you from Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 2. It says, Then the priests left the holy place. All the priests who were present had purified themselves, whether or not they were on duty that day. Isn't that interesting? And that's just now kind of hitting me. <laughs> These spiritual leaders of Israel at that time, there were times when they were on duty and off duty. There were times when they had specific responsibilities and then they had days off to rest and recover. Isn't it interesting that they didn't consider the need to be pure before God driven by whether they were on duty or off duty? It says even though some of these guys were off duty, they didn't have to. They made sure their hearts were pure and right before God. Friends, don't you feel like we're supposed to always be on duty when we're following Jesus Christ? And that's important whether it's Sunday or whether it's something important coming up that we live with our hearts pure and clean before God. Verse 12, anyway, I don't know, that's probably another message for another day. And the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Haman, Jeduthun, and all their sons and brothers were dressed in fine linen robes and stood at the east side of the altar playing cymbals, lyres, and harps. So they even had music back in the Old Testament. That was part of their worship experience. They were joined by 120 priests who were all playing trumpets. So you've been around 120 trumpet players, it gets kind of loud. So this is what's going on here. The trumpeters and the singers perform together in unison to praise and to give thanks to the Lord. So I realize that some of us come from different religious and church backgrounds or from no church background at all. And sometimes just the presence of drums and instruments is tough for people. Just understand we're not doing anything that the Bible doesn't set a precedent for. They had music in the Old Testament and that's fine. You can find God through music without music. The idea is that we're not limited by that, but music is def- and instruments are definitely not excluded from things that are acceptable forms of worship to God. Verse 13. 
The trumpeters and singers performed together in unison in praise and gave thanks to God. Unison's important too. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words. He is good. His faithful love endures forever. So they're right in the middle of kind of their worship service. It was probably different than ours, but it was loud. There are lots of instruments. Um, everybody's in unison. They're in agreement. They mean the same things. They're singing the same words. It's this great moment. And then it says, and at that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests couldn't continue their services because of the cloud for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. A literal cloud filled the temple and it so interrupted the things that they couldn't even keep playing their music or sing anymore. Then Solomon prayed, O Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness. Now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. Now, in Solomon's mind, he was probably pretty serious. He's like, God, we have, we have arrived. I have now built a permanent place, and your, your presence can live in this temple, in this geographic spot, at this GPS coordinate forever. And he probably, with all the sincerity of his heart, meant and believed that. But do you understand that God never wanted his presence to be relegated to one specific spot at one specific time? Here's Solomon saying, I've built for you the temple. But then in the New Testament, here's what Paul says about the same thing. He's writing to believers, to disciples, and he says this. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God now lives in you. So isn't it interesting, in the Old Testament, you have this manifest presence of God at different times and places. We see God break through um, He's not so invisible and unsensible. He becomes very tangible, manifest. And Solomon in that day and age thinks that, man, this is awesome. Who would ever want to leave the temple? And in the Old Testament, it's not like people could just experience the presence of God inside of them all the time. That wasn't normal. It was like only a few specific people at a few specific times with a with a very specific protocol could actually go into the temple and go into the Holy of Holies and the, or go into the holy place and the Holy of Holies and we could talk all about that. We won't this week. Maybe we'll talk more about it next week. And everybody in the camp would stand outside and they'd stand outside their tents and they'd wait and they'd watch and they could see the presence of God but they couldn't experience it personally. And here Solomon says, finally we've built a temple and the cloud of God comes down here and they can all see and sense and they're not making this up. It's not a haze machine. This is actually the presence of God here. And then in the New Testament, Paul says, but friend, don't you realize God doesn't need a, you know, a 144 by 144 cinder block building. It was more than cinder block, but he doesn't need a building anymore. He wants to live in you. The same manifest presence of God that they experienced there is available for you and me today. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, he lives inside of you. No theologian would disagree with this. The tragedy is that most of us live with complete ignorance to that. The Bible teaches us over and over and over about the presence of God. And I think most Christian authors and most even organized Christian religions, you know, when you'd read through their theology and their statements of doctrine, they'd agree with everything that I'm going to be teaching you this morning. It's lifted right out of the Bible. The problem is it doesn't usually move from knowledge to experience. And this morning, I'm hoping that I can give you a little bit of knowledge and information from the Bible, some truth that whets an appetite for you to experience the presence of God on a daily basis for yourself. So here's the big idea for this morning. The big idea is this. The big idea is that God has always wanted to be with us. Friend, if I could narrow down the entire narrative of the Bible for you into a sentence, 
it would be this. God has always wanted to be with us. He wants to be inseparable. That's what he wants. It's the whole Bible from the beginning to the end. He's always wanted to be with us. Through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we can experience God's presence around us. We can experience God's presence upon us. And we can experience God's presence within us. Through a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can experience God's presence around us, upon us, and within us. So this morning, I'm going to talk to you just briefly about recognizing God's presence. How do you recognize God's presence? And I guess we need to maybe start off with the definition. And there's many different ways I've heard God's presence defined. I'll just give you a simple one this morning. God's presence is the complete opposite of God's absence. God's presence is very simply where he is. That's God's presence. Now, my presence is different than God's presence in many ways. But probably the most obvious is that I can only be in one place at one time. And even sometimes, if you've run into me at at the wrong time, I might physically be in a place that my brain is not. You know people like that? They're like standing right there and you're talking to them, but they're not there even though they are. It happens to my wife sometimes at the end of a long day with my three-year-old. Like she'll be right there talking to me, but her brain is on a beach somewhere (laughs) with headphones in her ear and a book and me chasing our son all all over Bethany Beach. God is different than we are. Thank God. (laughs) He's different than we are. And that God is not only here, God is everywhere. And sometimes preachers are hesitant to talk about God being everywhere because if you're not careful, it sounds like pantheism a little bit. It sounds like we're saying God is in everything and, and and the sum of all creation adds up to God, that God is in the leaf and God is in the chair and God is in... That's not what we're talking about. That kind of undeifies, you know, a lot of who God is. But God is everywhere. God's presence is the opposite of his absence. He is here right now, my friend. And he was here before we got here, and he will be here after we leave. The problem is most of us live most of our life completely unaware of the here-ness of God. And life is dreadful when you are not aware of Of the presence of God. However, life becomes joyous. Every day becomes new mercies. You can rejoice in the day that the Lord has made only if you can recognize the hereness of God. And He wants you and He wants me to be completely aware of His presence because the moment that I am aware of His presence, it becomes manifest to me. So let's look at it this morning. There's kind of three unique expressions that the Bible uses to describe God's presence. I wrapped them up in the big idea. I'm going to give them to you briefly this morning. One is the omnipresence of God. Now, some of these are pretty big theological terms. I had to study a long time and then have Pastor Stewart break it down for me so that I could be you know, capable of preaching this morning. But I'm going to, you know, we'll give you some real big thick words today, your words of the day. Omnipresence is one of them. The omnipresence of God, and that simply means God is everywhere. He's everywhere. There's no place that he is not. Now, some of us like to say, you know, when we come into the school, God isn't here, and when we come in, we bring God into this room, when we leave, he leaves with us. That's not really true. God's here. God's always here. People just aren't aware of his here-ness. David 
says it this way in Psalm 139, verse 7. He says, I can never escape from your spirit. In fact, it's kind of interesting. If you look at what was going on in David's life at this point, he kind of wanted to escape God's spirit. It's like my son, when, now my son's gotten to the point where he knows if he has crossed the line, he runs and he hides. Because he thinks if he can just hide from us, somehow he'll be safe from whatever the consequence of his latest mischief was. David says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. In the New Testament, Matthew writes, no one will notice that you're fasting. This is Jesus speaking. No one will notice that you're fasting except your father. Your father knows what you do in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. Omnipresence of God simply means that God is everywhere. There is no place that God is not. If we think about the omnipresence of God, here's a few things that it means. There is no one person closer to God in terms of proximity than another. If there were 10 million intelligent beings spread out as far as you could with an unquantifiable difference between them throughout the universe, every single one of them could say with exact accuracy as another, God is here. You cannot get farther away from God or closer to God in terms of geographic proximity. God is, in fact, indivisibly close to all of us because he is here. He is everywhere. David said it this way, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the lowest of places, you're there too. Let me tell you, some of us love to live for the highs. And we think that God is only in the highs. He's also in the lows and he's in the mundane. He's in all of it. He is, in fact, everywhere. So when we talk about, in Christian circles, you sometimes hear people say, if you're far from God or close to God, and we can kind of interpret that improperly and think that somehow God just is this close to me. But if you're not thinking of God or if you're not religious or you don't believe that he's somehow far from you, that's not what we're talking about in proximity. What we're talking about is relationship. Some people walk with a very close awareness of God. They hear his whispers. They smell his scent. They feel his, the feelings of being close to God. And then other of us live in a complete place of unawareness and not being receptive and unresponsive. There's no longing for him. That person may feel far from God when in fact he is closer than your next breath. Friend, this morning, if you feel far from God, it's not because he has left you and abandoned you. He is right there waiting for you to just cast a glance towards him. To just open up an ear to him. To open up your heart just one millimeter. He is here. He is everywhere. Now, here's the thing about the omnipresence of God. Just because... God is everywhere doesn't mean that you and I are always aware of this. You can't turn the omnipresence of God on or off. There's not like a little switch. You can say, you know what? I just need to kind of hide this part of my life from God real quick. I'm going to switch it off and do the thing. Then we'll turn it back on and everything will be good again. That's not how the omnipresence of God works. Now, for some of us, this is very comforting. For others of us, this is terrifying. And if we're honest, for most of us, it's a mixture of both. God sees everything, including, Jesus says, what we do in private. In another translation, it says in the secret place. Jesus talks about this a lot in Matthew chapter 6 when he's talking about prayer and he's talking about giving and he's talking about fasting. And a lot of people read this passage and they interpret it incorrectly because they think it's a passage about how to pray and how to fast and how to give. And that's not really what it's talking about. It's talking about motives. 
Because you see, you can do the right thing for the wrong reason and think that you're doing something for God and that God's going to bless you because you're doing the right thing. But what Jesus is trying to say is he sees what everybody doesn't see. He sees your motives. And your motives, in many ways, determine whether or not God can bless you. And here he broke it down this way. He says, there's a lot of you that you love to pray. Praying is a good thing. He says, but you like to pray so that everybody can see you praying and you can shape their perception of you as being some spiritual giant. You use big theological words. You like to pray really loud where everybody can see you. And he says, you are getting a reward every time you do this. And the reward you get is public opinion and public esteem. The reward you get is that people are probably going to give you opportunities as you to come pray in their church and lead the prayer ministry. They're going to come to you with advice. They're going to walk around and say, oh, that person's really smart and that person's really walking close to God. He says, you get a reward for this. However, he says, in your heart is what God sees. And God sees that motive. And he says, you better enjoy the reward you're getting now because God sees the secret places of your heart and he cannot reward that motive. He says the same thing about giving. He says, there's a lot of you that are giving and you're giving good money. And you give in such a way that people think that you're generous and you want to point attention to all of your gifts. And the motive of your heart is for people to think of you as a generous person. And you're using a good deed to influence people's opinions. So he says, so when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand doing. And there are some people who say, well then, you know, the Bible teaches that we shouldn't put our name on a giving statement and that I should give everything anonymously. Understand Jesus is asking you to do something that's kind of intrinsically impossible if you take it literally. How can your left hand, if your left hand knows what your right hand isn't doing, you've got other issues. It's not a message on methodology, it's a message on motive. What he's saying is let your motive be such that whether everybody knows or nobody knows, the motive of your heart is to say, I'm giving out of love for God and love for the work of his kingdom. That's why I say here on Sunday morning, I'm not going to pump you. People say, well, Pastor, I, you know, I feel like you pump me for money. If you feel like I pump you for money, don't give because that's the wrong motive. Willing and able. If you want to give and you're able to give, you have opportunities to give. If you don't want to give, or you, if you don't want to give and you're able to give, that's a heart issue. If you want to give but you're not able to give, that's a financial issue and that might be an area of need in your life or an area of management in your life. Bottom line is this, the closer I walk to Jesus, I don't need someone to pump me to give. I just want to give. We're just giving you an opportunity to give it. It's all about the heart. If you're just giving to impress me or appease me or appease your church, I don't want you to give. There's no, there's no blessing for you. Don't worry. I mean, it probably goes in the offering every week. It's being used, but there's no blessing in it for you. The point of the matter is that God sees everything. And what Jesus is saying is, God, where does God look for what he can reward you? He looks into the secret place of your heart. The Bible speaks from the beginning to the end that God wants to bless his people. God wants to bless you, and he does want to honor you, and he does want to reward you. Where does he look? the secret areas of your life and the private place of your heart. So here's my question. Is there anything blessable in your secret life? Is there anything in the quietness of your life and the privacy of your heart that God can look into and say, now that is a blessable person? Or is that the place that we usually try and sweep everything under the rug away from public opinion and that's where God's looking because his omnipresence sees everything. It says the hidden things of the world will be manifest. So here's the thing. If your heart is clean and pure before God, you welcome the omnipresence of God. You are thankful that God sees everything because even though you might feel like life is beating you down and you're getting beat over the head by a, a spouse who doesn't love you and a boss who doesn't appreciate you and a, and a barista who always makes, gets your order wrong every single time, the way you handle it in the quietness of your heart, God saying, I see your heart. This is someone I can trust. This is someone whose heart's after me. I can bless you. 
So the omnipresence of God doesn't have to be something that we're terrified unless, of course, you have something you're trying to hide from them. And then you better be very aware that God sees those things. And he's not trying to play gotcha. He sees those things. He's going to bring it to your attention because he wants to lift those things out of you and help you to live clean before him. So the omnipresence of God is God is everywhere. You and I don't necessarily have a relationship with the omnipresence of God. It is the reality. But where we begin to connect and become aware of the reality is the next expression of God's presence. And that's the the word the Bible says is manifest. Number two, the manifest presence of God. So you have the omnipresence of God, which is God is everywhere. You have the manifest presence of God, which is God upon me. That's kind of like the passage we just read from 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. At that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Now, I grew up, unlike probably most of the people in this room, I grew up in a very small Pentecostal church. It was probably very small because of what I'm about to say. Um, And they were all about what they would call the moving of the Spirit. I saw some things. (laughs) And because of that, I was scared to death of any of that ever happening to me. I saw some things I read about in the Bible, and I saw things I had never read anywhere. (laughs) Some of you are laughing because you've experienced this. Others are nervous because, Pastor, are you going to be getting out the snakes now? Are you going to be... Are you going to be like going around slapping us on the forehead so we fall down and people catch us and you cover us with the blanket? Listen. (laughs) Here's what I believe about God. I believe God is very strong and powerful. If he needs me to be in a posture I'm not, he can find a way to get me into that posture. Anytime that you talk about the manifest presence of God and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you have excess and you have what we would call the flesh, and you have emotion and hyper-emotion and people going way to unhealthy extremes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have people doing all kinds of things in the name of God that aren't necessarily godly at all. They're just the latest dance craze, or they wanted to sprint around, or they wanted to wave, whatever they wanted to do. At the same time, I must tell you this. There is a promise made to us through the Bible that there is an outpouring of the Spirit of God that He wants to pour on all of us and I, am, I would much rather walk with people and pastor them through maybe going a little too far to the extreme and bringing them back here than to say, because we're afraid of that, we're going to shut it down and not have it at all. And there's a fine line to go, to go on that. But I will tell you this. I've not found God to need us to add any extra dramatics or theatrics. I've found God to be pretty good at letting you know personally when he is near. And all throughout the Bible, we have different ways where God made his presence manifest. And I think for some of us, we get really nervous about this because of our perception, because of a bad experience. And I'm not trying to ask you to just dismiss that. What I'm asking you is to maybe just come back to a moment and say, if there is more of God that I can experience, would I be interested in experiencing him in that way? We want to make a safe environment for you to be able to experience God in that way because he wants to not just be understood. He wants you to know him. And one of the ways you know anybody is by getting closer to who they are, by hearing their voice and by recognizing their presence and knowing what they're about and what they're not about. Manifest means to, simply means to make known. The manifest presence of God is a special way that God makes himself known. This is how God is, this is how God is sensed. This is how God becomes sensible. In other words, you can, you can now we're going to get into inexact language. You can hear him. You can 
feel him. You can touch him. You can taste, taste and see the Lord is good. The Bible uses all this imagery. This is when, really, the simplest way is anytime you become absolutely aware of God's presence, that's the manifest presence of God. Have you ever had an experience where you say, you know, Pastor, I don't have the exact words to describe it, but I just know that I know that I know that at that moment, God was there. You ever had that experience? Six of you? Seven of you? Okay. We got work to do. (laughs) It's okay. It's good work to be in. He comes in different ways. Has there ever been a time where you did something that was wrong and you were just gripped? I'm not just saying your conscience was bothering you. That's sometimes the best way you can describe it. But you just, you almost felt it here. The wrongness of what you had done or thought or felt. Have you also been in a moment where you, like for me, it's like I'm, I'm German. We, we didn't grow up crying. Um, you, we, didn't, we would drop bowling balls on our feet and not cry. But for whatever reason, when I recognize the closeness of God's presence, my eyes well up with tears and kind of embarrassing for me. I tell Chris all the time, I need to like just stop singing along with you on Sunday about five minutes before I need to get up here because I'm usually a mess down here. Um, that's just for me. It's not for everybody, but that's how I recognize how close God is. I want you to understand God wants you to be convinced of his reality and he wants you to not just know him theologically. He wants you to experience him in a relationship and that's part of what comes with it. And it's, in some ways, it's unique to all of us. And the best way you can describe it is analogies. I've heard people try and say, these are the 12 different ways you know God is near. That's unfair. <laughs> it's unique to you. Because really, our human language falls short when you're trying to describe someone who's infinite. The best way we can kind of do it is maybe describing what it's like, even if we don't know exactly what it is. Sometimes it feels like you're dropping down on a roller coaster. And sometimes it feels like joy, but it's not exactly like joy. Sometimes you're crying, but it's a different crying than when you drop a bowling ball on your foot or when you're, you're, you know, your loved one breaks your heart. It's a different kind of a thing. The manifest presence of God can be seen, it can be heard, it can be felt, it can be tasted, it can be touched, it can be imagined, it can be thought, it can be dreamt, it can be experienced. Here's the thing. The manifest presence of God can be experienced by people who believe and people who don't. Just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean that you can't hear, see, feel God's presence around you. In fact, all through the Bible, many of the times that God showed up in that way and let his presence be manifest in that way, it was specifically to be a sign for people who didn't believe him. Which is really the purpose Paul talks about in the New Testament for things like gifts of healing and this and that and the other. Sometimes the reason why God wants us to give space when we come together as a group to pray for people's healings is not because God needs us to come together as a group for people to be healed. You can be healed praying for yourself in a hospital room. You can be healed praying with somebody else over the phone. You can be healed in any, every place is just as good of a place as another for you to be healed. But sometimes God wants to do it when we come together because he knows there's going to be unbelievers here who are wondering if he exists. And he does it, Paul says, as a sign to people who don't believe, who are kind of on the fence and skeptical. And they say, I don't know whether I believe or not, but that was real. <laughs> I've had these experiences in my own life. I, when I was a youth pastor in Georgia, I'm way off the script now, but when I, when I was a youth pastor in Georgia, um, about two years after, after I was there, God started, started doing something really um, unique in our youth ministry, and our students started coming um, like an hour before our Wednesday night youth service. The high school students would come early, and they would just pray, and they would just ask God to do the unexpected. 
And then the unexpected became the expected. And, we, and the one week I remember a young man, Kenneth Davis is his name. I would say was his name. Still is his name. He's in the Navy now. But he came in that week and he played football for Griffin High School. And uh, he came in with a cast from his ankle up to his hip. And he came in and he hobbled in and he sat in a seat on the end. And one of my interns at the time, who is now the district youth director of the Appalachian District, so he won't even return my calls. He's such a big deal now. But at the time, he was my intern. And, uh, and he, said, uh, he said, man... He's, he's kind of rubbing his hands like this. He's like, do you see Kenneth over there? I said, yeah, I see Kenneth over there. He's like, yeah, he's got a broken leg. I said, yeah, you, you're a genius. You know, he's got a thing right. He's like, you want me to go sign it? Or He's like, no, 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 I think we need to pray for him. And I'm like, that's not in the category of things I was comfortable with at that point. Like if someone came in with a cold or I was just kind of like, like a paper cut or, you know, your girlfriend dumped you for the third time this week. Like that was in the category of things I had faith for. Joker walks in with a broken leg. I was like, nah, nah, well, we'll pray for him from her. He's like, no, I really feel like, I'm just feeling my heart. We need to pray for his healing. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. We start the youth service and, you know, and we, you know, we had three or 400 students there and worshiping and praying and we were in an auditorium like this that we had built for them and you know, we were singing the song just like we were this morning and my, Adam comes up to me again, my intern, he says, he says, Phil, man, we really need, I just really feel like we need to ask him to come front and pray for him. Now all these hesitations, okay, so if I ask him to come front, like, what if nothing happens? What prayer do I pray? Is he, what am I looking for here? Is he going to break out of the cast? Or are his parents going to be mad? Are we going to get sued? All this stuff's going through my mind. Like, what if I pray for him and he falls down? Like, like, like you know, like, half the kids in the room are going to leave. The other half are going to think it's funny. Like, everybody's going to come up, and then they're all going to want to fall down. And like, I, I'm, all the objections in my mind, I'm like, coming, I'm, I'm like the guy that needs to buy a car that doesn't want to talk to a salesman. I'm like, I don't want to go through the effort of telling you the hundred reasons why I don't. I just... And he, and he says, no, really, I really think we need to. I'm like, fine, fine. And I take the microphone and I, you know, we, the singing's done. And I say, you know, um, guys, I was going to preach right now, but Adam just keeps bugging me and he's not going to shut up until I, no, I didn't say that. But I just said, uh, Kenny, I don't know, I don't have a, I said, Kenny, for whatever reason, we just want to pray for you tonight. And, um, and then out of my mouth, and I didn't think about this, I said, I believe God wants to heal you tonight. Like, oh man, I just wrote a check. I hope God cashes. You know, like, I, like I've just climbed way out on a limb here. Because I've prayed for people and they get healed, and I pray for people and they don't. At the end of the day, I don't depend on God's I don't depend on God answering all of my prayers for me to know that He exists. But sometimes God says yes and sometimes He says no. But I still have faith to believe, and I'm gonna press on, and whether God heals me, fantastic, or if he gives me the strength to live a productive life, even in spite of it, that's a miracle nonetheless. But I know when I get to heaven, I'm not gonna have to pray for anything. I'm gonna be completely whole and completely healed and have a new body. So I'm like trying to cover all my base. I'm like, Kenny, I believe God wants to wants to heal you tonight. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, what did I just say? This will be my last week. He comes up front, long story short. I wouldn't be telling this story if it didn't end in the way that you probably think it's gonna end. He comes up front. And my interns, Adam and Daniel, move right in front of me. I mean, they're on, and they just, I mean, they didn't slap him on the head and throw him on the ground. They just, I don't even know what they said, to be honest with you. I just know that they really honestly believed that God wanted to do something. I'm going to tell you, half of his friends of the football team are there. And all the other kids are kind of sitting there watching, and they're standing up in the back. They're not worshiping, but they're kind of like, I want to leave, but I want to see what happens first. It's like, I want to turn the channel, but not yet. You know, and it's kind of like, and they're watching. And then Kenny throws his crutches down, and he starts to hobble a little bit. And it, he was in pain at first. And then he says, I feel like I could run. And I'm kind of like, Kenny, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> and Adam and Daniel are like, okay, you can run. I mean, this is Georgia. Like, they run for everything. And he's like, and, and so he, he cuts the cast off. I don't know, like, it's Georgia. 18 of the kids have knives on them. You know, they're like, cut, you know, they're, they cut, they hack this cast off his leg. And I'm just like, I'm sitting down on the stage. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm fired. Like, someone's probably, you know, 
this is going to be on YouTube at that time. This is going to be on MySpace tonight. You know, this is going to be. And he cuts the thing off. I'm telling you, he starts running back and forth with no limp. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. But I, but I wonder if his leg was really broken. I'm embarrassed to be admitting. I'm just telling you, I am not an easy buy. I'm not an easy sell when it comes to this stuff. And the whole time, I think God is healing him and he's teaching me. And I'm watching him run back and forth. And he's, you know, the whole place is going nuts. And now kids are coming down the altar just weeping. And the one girl's like, I have asthma. Do you think God can heal me? And I'm like, I didn't even know teenagers got sick. <laughs> Seriously. And then I just say, all right, well, I guess if, if you're struggling with anything physically and you believe God can touch you, like 125 kids come to the altar. I'm like, I have just lived in complete ignorance. Here are all these weeks that God was here to heal these kids and because I'm just not even aware, I'm a pastor and I didn't even truly believe. I believed that God did it, I just didn't believe he was still doing it. All these kids were praying. Some got miraculously healed, others didn't. We prayed. Kenny's mom makes a beeline for me after the service. I'm like, I'm definitely toast now. She's like, um, did you? see my son here early? Uh, yes ma'am I did it's on tape um, she said uh, you do realize he came in here with a cast on his leg yes ma'am can you explain why his cast is now hacked to pieces like 18 kids took their buck knife at it? yes ma'am um, we just believe that God wanted to heal him and she said I'm taking him to the doctor tomorrow long story short that Wednesday she comes the next Wednesday she comes in she's like I have two sets of x-rays Here's the one with the break on it. Here's the one we got last week. Here's a break. Here's no break. She's like, like, he obviously healed him. And and God brought the empirical proof behind it. So um, then a magazine found out about it. And they were skeptical. And they came and they started interviewing students. I still have copies of the magazine. They started interviewing students. And over the next six months, there were 50, like 52 or 53 confirmed documented healings that had not only, wasn't just an emotional moment at the altar, there was an empirical science or medical proof. Now, why do I say, did I do? No. I just had to open up the possibility in my heart that even though I didn't get it all theologically, even though quite honestly it made me uncomfortable naturally, I'm just not that guy. I had to step back from that and say, God, what is the purpose of it? But more important than people being healed, I've got to tell you how many people, how many of their friends came and found salvation through Jesus Christ. Those boys that were standing in the back, they came down front for prayer. They weren't unhealthy. They just wanted to be part of whatever that was. And so we were leading in the Lord left and right. Revival on that football team. They invited me to come be the chaplain. God did incredible things. Two of those guys, Bobby Rainey, one of the guys, he's a running back of the NFL now. He was in that service. You know, there's all kinds of things that were going on there in that moment. Why? Just so that Kenny could run around with his new leg? No, so that God could reveal himself to people who did not believe that he exists in a way that they could not deny. All through the Bible, you have a burning bush. You have God speaking out loud to Samuel when he's a little boy. You have... You have a thick cloud of smoke filling the temple. In the New Testament, you have Jesus baptized in water and they hear a voice out of heaven speaking to Jesus. You have the apostle John losing all of his bodily strength and God opening up his eyes to see a vision that he writes down becomes the book of Revelation. All through the Bible, you have different occasions and circumstances where God's presence just opened up and showed up to people so that would come to, not just so they could walk around and talk about how they're better than other churches. Well, at our church, we have the presence of God and we have the power of God. Well, it's not really for you to walk around and talk about how great you are. 
It's for God to do something in you and do something through you and to reveal himself to people who are skeptical about whether he exists or not. Now, not everybody who sees that believes in God. And unfortunately, there's just enough counterfeit around that sometimes people watch people getting all caught up in themselves and they watch and they study and then they see that it was phony and excess and fake and they see the person who was standing over here twirling around and lifting their hand Sunday morning cussing somebody else out at the, at the fast food joint this week or, or losing their temper at work the other day and they conclude it's all fake. So if you're going to be the one that trumpets and carries a banner, if I've got the presence of God in my life and I live, then friend, act like it. Act like the character of Jesus Christ. God has enough barriers to overcome with people coming to him. He doesn't need Christians to help him out. So I say all that to say this. Maybe, just maybe, the God of the Bible is still our everyday God. Maybe what God used to do, he is still, in fact, doing. And maybe not God, maybe God's not interested in grabbing you out of your seat and getting you to the point where you're sprinting up and down the aisle and waving a banner and... That's not the point. He's not trying to get you to a point. He's trying to put you on a path. He just wants you to know that he is. He just wants you to know that he is and that he exists and that you can very much experience his presence for yourself because there is nothing like the presence of God. It truly is the most magnificent and wonderful thing When you're in the presence of God, your character changes. Your desire changes. If you're a violent person and you come into the presence of God, he tames your soul like a lamb. If you've been an unforgiving person, he softens your heart and you become gracious and you become tender. If you're an anxious person and you walk in the presence of God and you live in the presence of God, you become someone who is filled with the peace of God. If you're someone who is confused you, become into a, you come into the presence of God and you walk with a sense of purpose and a sense of destiny. All I'm trying to do, all I'm trying to do is to whet your appetite enough that you might open your heart to the possibility of the presence of God and saying, I want to know him and I want to experience him for myself. I'm not done with the message, but we're done with the message. I'll pick it up here next week. Can I invite the worship team to come back? Here's what we're gonna do. I don't wanna just talk about this this morning, I want to give you opportunity, an opportunity to experience the presence of God for yourself this morning. I had not planned on sharing that story about Kenny today, but maybe I believe that I was supposed to share that story because you may not have come in here with a cast on your leg, but you came in here this morning with something going on in your life physically. You came in here with a sickness or an illness or some pain. I'm going to try and put it in a box. If I'm talking about it and you're saying that might be me, it's you. (laughs) In just a moment, if you're comfortable, you're not forced to do this. In just a moment, I'm going to invite the worship team to lead us again in singing a song of praise and love to God, talking about how God's love never fails and never gives up on us. And when they do that, I'll make an invitation. And if you have something going on physically in your body that you believe that you would be open to the possibility of God's power touching you and changing that today, I'd like to pray with you. I'd like to pray and I'd like to ask God to do what only he can do uniquely and minister healing to your body. But even more importantly than that, I'm going to give another opportunity this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
for you to experience the greatest miracle of all, and that is the transforming power that comes when you're in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So I just want to invite you for a moment, if you just bow your head and close your eyes all over the auditorium, I want to give you an invitation this morning. If you know that you know that you know that you're not right with God, you've never said yes to him, You've never surrendered your life. You've never repented. You've never asked God to forgive you of your sins. You've never invited Jesus into your life. But you're feeling a little tiny bit of faith rise up inside of you today. That's enough to save you, the Bible says. And so today, I just want to invite you to pray a simple prayer. A simple prayer of confession that says, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are the Son of God. Everything the Bible says about you is true. I believe you lived the life I should have lived. You died the death I should have died. And you are alive today. I accept the payment you made for my sins. Please forgive me. I invite you into my life and I surrender control to you. In your name I pray, amen.